This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. People value creating something over having a number attached to a bank account in the UK in general. I think the attitude and the environment here is very positive, but people tend not to like people that get too full of themselves. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and the co-founder of Manage Flitter. And I know I've been saying this for a while as well, Kate, and Manage Social. And it's this mysterious product that we've been working on for a while. Maybe one day in my book I'll reveal why it's taken a little while. But we are still working on it. A few, a few of us, not just one person, so it is going to see the light of day. Um, it actually looks great. Kate's been responsible for a lot of the UI and the, the design so it's going to be Kate's uh, great work there so stick around anyway we're not talking about that we're talking podcast today episode 119 you haven't heard from us from a little while mainly mainly because of me I've been uh, lucky enough to to work and, and travel a little bit I'm you know Australia is such a wonderful place but it can feel sometimes that you're a little bit disconnected from the rest of the world but now I'm actually sitting in Paris which feels very much like the center of the world in many ways, which is great, but that's, that's one of the reasons why we have delayed the podcast. So we rec- um, the podcast has been delayed due to some, some of my travels. It's Tuesday the 15th of May. We're recording this podcast. You're probably listening to it a little bit uh, later. Coming up in the show today, we have a great interview I did with Mark Littlewood, who's the CEO of Business of Software Conference. And uh, I had a great chat with Mark. He's a, a colorful guy. He's based in the UK, which was Cambridge, I think, um, or Oxford. I always get confused between the two. And um, we had a great chat about the software industry and the software industry in the UK and the challenges of creating software industries and and the rise of the entrepreneur. And um, we even spoke about Cambridge Analytica because, of course, Cambridge Analytica is from his part of the world, Cambridge. And uh, Mark gave us some some interesting insights into the tech scene in England, which... um, I never hear of. I'm not saying it doesn't just because I didn't hear of it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I don't hear much about it. But um, as usual, we're going to kick off with the tech news. And it's been, boy, it's been an interesting sort of few weeks in tech news. Kate, Google's AI duplex making real phone calls. Wow, I saw this and I've been thinking a lot about this since. Now, if you're listening and you haven't seen this video, what it actually what Google actually created was a, an AI system, an artificial intelligence system that sounds like a human, and it really, really does sound like a human, but it's not a human. And it can call and make appointments for you at a restaurant or a hairdresser, and those are the two examples that Google actually used to uh, sample this AI. And um, it just sounds like a human having a normal conversation, uh, asking about what times they'd like to make their appointments. And the hairdresser says, well, we can only offer this time. And you hear a few ums and ahs. And, and this is all Google's AI. And um, yeah, it was incredibly impressive. What did you think of it, Kate? Yeah, I thought they did like uncannily good job of copying like a real human voice. The ums and the ahs, the, the, the tone, it didn't sound uh, electronic. Uh, like some of the AIs do. It was an actual human voice. But yeah, it's interesting. Like I was reading that they only have, they only currently works in three scenarios. So they've sort of, I guess, designed it in a way that it can answer any 
possible question for when you're making a restaurant reservation, if you're scheduling a haircut or you're asking a business for their holiday hours. But in other scenarios, they haven't fleshed it out as much. Um, so those ones they've specialized in. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they used samples that they knew were going to work well. Um, and, oh, for sure. And to, to showcase it. But, I mean, I, I saw a lot of criticism as well saying that it's, you know, it's incredibly unethical to not reveal to the person at the other end that it is actually a robot. And I actually do agree with that. And I can actually see that in future there may be some disclaimer at the beginning of a call saying that, uh, you know, hi, this is a Google AI phone call, um, which is reasonable enough. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's a little bit creepy to think you're chatting to a human and you're not. Um, there, there's, something, there's something a bit um, squeaky about that. Yeah, there is. But it's also interesting that, you know, if somebody did ring you and it started by saying, oh, this is a robot, the likelihood of you hanging up is quite high, especially if you haven't uh, embraced the tech. So they actually need to be smarter about it, I think. They need to use like a tone or there needs to be another obvious social cue that says it's a robot without saying, this is a robot. Well, probably the easiest one is to make the voice a bit more robotic. So to actually yeah. tune, tune the naturalness down. But there are a few points where you can hear a hint of roboticness in it. If you do listen carefully, you can. So what you're going to hear is the Google Assistant actually calling a real salon to schedule the appointment for you. Let's listen. Hi, I'm calling to book a women's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. It would be really interesting to, to see how Google would handle a, a sort of tangent question, you know, if while the person was looking up the sort of dates, they would say, you know, what did you think of the sports game last night? You know, that's XYZ team one. It's uh, we all buzzing today. And it would be interesting to see. I knew that I know they do talk about how every scenario that it can't deal with is going to get pushed to a human and they're going to train mm. the system. And this is where really the power of these AI systems, the power is not so much that it can now make a booking, right? That's not really the power. The power of it is getting these systems to learn so that over a few years or whatever time frame, this system's going to be able to, to, to handle almost any scenario and any conversation. And then you tie this AI together with the, the robotics and you then, boom, you've, you've, you've got the I wouldn't say the holy grail because that's not necessarily what we're aiming for, but you've got a, a lifelike robot that um, walks, talks, and functions like a human. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of sort of social and ethical issues as well with that kind of AI. 
Because when you think about it, like even, for example, like booking a haircut, um, there's like it sort of brings up questions of tech privilege because you've got, you know, the people who have this kind of tech and can use this kind of tech offloading a potentially boring conversation to the AI and then someone who's sort of in a lower paid service job has to deal with these robots, especially while they're still learning and stuff. So it's, it's actually potentially not the people who are using the AI aren't the people who are having to deal with it. So essentially so making, Google's, Google's outsourcing all the training to uh, people being paid by someone else, right? Yes. You can also have, you know, you lose a lot of social interactions. So by making little phone calls or talking to people, you know, how's the weather or can I do this? Or if it's for five minutes, you know, talking to strangers, actually quite a big part of, of community and, you know, trusting other humans and stuff. And if you start outsourcing all of that to an AI, like you wonder what's going to happen to like the fabric of society. I mean, it's already happening though, right? People don't use the phone anymore. There's self-service checkouts. There's all sorts of the self-check-in hotels. There's all sorts of, you know, those, 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 um, those sort of accidental interactions that we would have have already been, been so, um, you know, attenuated and, and so minimized. So it's, you know, that, that horse is already bolted. But I can certainly see, yes, it's, it's only going to accelerate that. Yeah. Definitely. Plus as well, like, if, can you imagine if you if you worked at a hair salon and you had all these robots calling you and you realize they're robots, so you take the call and schedule it. I don't know, it would make you a little bit harsher, a bit ruder, I think, because you're not going to treat the robot like you would treat a human. Well, here's the thing. We are not having the discussion in society and at, at government and policy levels around what type of society we want to create and the, the position of these technologies in society and the ethical implications and the moral implications and the social implications and all of these implications we should be talking about even the safety implications you know of things like autonomous vehicles and AI and there's and we need to be we can't just leave it up to the markets to decide right it's it's the markets the market only works well within a framework and that's that's been set for it so we need to, we need to, you know, and, and, and I think these tech companies, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, I actually think that they have a responsibility, not so much to set the moral sort of uh, ground rules, but I think they've got a responsibility to, to lobby the government to start having these discussions. And I know Elon Musk has said, uh, you know, has, has pushed for a little bit of this, but they should be lobby, lobbying the governments. But maybe, maybe they feel it's actually in their interest to have more of an open playing field. Yeah. I mean... It gives them a lot of freedom and they probably don't want the government breathing down their neck. But it's still something that needs to be discussed for the greater good. I agree on that point. Yeah, and, and, it's, and I've said this in one of the previous shows where, you know, when, the, when members of the U.S. government were quizzing Mark Zuckerberg and they failed to, you know, there was one member that, that uh, represented that failed to understand the difference between a WhatsApp message and an email, All right? Now, when you have that level of, you know, ignorance, and uh, where you're going to even start with having a discussion about AI and the world we want to create. And um, I mean, yeah, look, this, the, the self-learning mechanisms are going to absolutely, the next five, ten years, we're going to be having a totally, I mean, we'll, we'll be listening back on these podcasts and um, sort of laughing at, at, at technologies like this because it's, um, 
It's going to compound in ways we can't even begin to imagine. And uh, I think it is a not a marginal issue that we're not talking about the, the moral and, and implications to society. I think it's a significant problem that we're not talking about these issues because once you have an intelligent robot running around with a gun that knows everything, it's sort of too late, right? I don't know, Kate, sometimes I can depress myself with all these thoughts of the future. Yeah. You should also, like, it's important to think of the benefits as well. Um, <laughs> people, people need to have, like, there needs to be a balance. Like, these conversations need to be had. But at the same time, you know, for example, there's a use case for for this AI where, where Google rings a small business, for example, and asks them what their what their hours are over the holidays. And so then the business tells the AI and it automatically updates the website and updates Google. So all their customers now who are going to the internet to see if they're open, no. Um, rather than having like 50 phone calls asking the same question, are you open today? Are you open today? When time do you close? You've got one phone call and that updates the, updates the search engine and then happy days. I think that's really cool. So we'll, we'll put a link to the show notes, uh, in the show notes to that. Or just Google it and you'll find it and you might have even seen it. But it's, uh, and um, of course, you know, what's happened, what's happens a lot in today's world is the machines talk to machines. So there's a high likelihood that the hairdresser and the restaurant are actually going to have an AI that actually answers the phone calls. So it will all sort of happen and update the booking system itself. You know, unless yeah. unless they specifically like the human touch, which will become a thing, you know, as well. It will be a point of difference. Like a service will, thing. Yeah, it will become a point of difference where you actually, you know, we have real receptionists type thing. And, and, you know, if you walk into a hotel and there's people to greet you, to check in, it's a, it's a huge amount nicer than actually, you know, even when you travel and you check in in the airline, it's so much nicer when you get a, a smiling, friendly face and you're excited to go on holiday as opposed to just going to this, this personality-less console to, to self-check-in, right? I guess, I guess. I think a lot of people would veer away from it, though, especially if they were in a hurry, like in the context of a hotel. I, I can just do it myself, and if, if the DIY way is cheaper and, and it, it flows, then they're probably going to opt for that regardless. Yeah, but I think, I think we'll, over time, fuse the two. We'll have robots that help us at check-in that look like humans and we won't really even know that they're humans. But time will tell. The future is infinitely difficult to predict. So um, I might get to eat all my words. Anyway, another interesting thing that happened over the last little while was uh, F8 Developer Conference. Now this is the famous regular, I think it's annual. Do they do it annually, Kate? I think so. And Facebook yeah, I believe conference. so. It's an annual annual conference that Facebook puts on. Where they make some uh, announcements about all their products and of course Facebook have a great suite of products. They have Instagram, they have WhatsApp and of course they have Facebook. Tell us a little bit about some of the announcements at the, the F8 Developers Conference. Yeah, so they've got some sort of smaller ones. They feel like they've built up a lot of features on Messenger and they're looking to simplify it now. So simplifying the UI uh, and introducing like a dark mode you know how you can change this, the light settings on your iPhone? It's going to be a similar thing. Mm-hmm. They're going all in on Instagram stories. So the AR face features like you get on Snapchat, they're going to be coming from brands and influencers. So you don't actually have to wait for Instagram to release their own. Plus, they're going to have more third-party integration. So, for example, if you're listening to something on Spotify, 
you can share that on your Instagram story and it'll actually have a deep link in it so the viewer can click through and listen to the song on their Spotify app mm-hmm. uh, rather than just a screenshot. They're also moving Instagram towards more messaging as well, so they're going to add like multi, multi-way video calling. Instagram used to be such a simple little product. I miss those days. I miss those days when Twitter was a simple little product, but it's just it's classic of, uh, you know, they, they just evolve and splinter and just become something much bigger than, than what they originally became famous for. Yeah, definitely. I still like Instagram, but I, I'm starting to see what it's doing. It's doing a similar thing to Facebook. It's just going to keep adding and adding and adding, and eventually there'll just be too much. It'll lose its appeal um, that it originally sort of had. Um, but anyway, the last two things were Facebook, so the Oculus Go, so $200 standalone VR headset is now available for purchase. So this will mostly just support like social experiments, multiplayer games. $200. Now, does this, does this need a special like powerful rig computer? Or? I'm not too sure on the details, right. but it's available for people to buy. And actually, I think there might have been an issue where Amazon released like the pre-orders too early, like before they before they actually announced it at the at the conference. So there was a bit of drama there. And Facebook are going to come after Tinder and OkCupid, so they're going to bring out Facebook dating, which I think is a little I bit of an that. overkill. Yeah, I saw but, <laughs> but but yeah, so interestingly, they're going to they're going to bring that in. So both Tinder and OkCupid saw their stock plummet as low as twenty percent per share when when Facebook announced that. So I don't know. It could mean good things. I know a lot of these apps actually hook into your Facebook profile. Yep, yep. Um, so Facebook is just going to do it themselves. Yeah, Tinder's become such a social phenomenon, hasn't it? It's like I think I think the young sort of 16 to 30-year-old generation, I don't know. So that generation is just, I mean, Tinder, I, I think they don't know what dating was like. I mean, I think they can't picture what dating was like before Tinder. It's almost like trying to picture a world without cars or something. It seems to be so dominant. Am I right? It is. It is. On one hand, it's quite good that it's so accepted now, but on the other hand, it's like it's kind of ruined it for a lot of people too because it's, I think, people personally, even if they don't realize it, like on a subconscious level, it's too easy to yeah. to have an argument with someone and then go on Tinder, flick through and find someone else. Yeah, it's the disposable sort of nature. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I, I do think it is a problem and it's going to be really interesting to see how relationships play out the next five to ten years um yeah yeah i think it, i think on the one hand like this kind of technology and i guess i guess tinder pioneered it but a lot of apps have just copied it it's a great way of of meeting people especially if you're traveling and stuff like that you know i've used similar things to you know if i'm by myself traveling i'll put something out there and and yeah i've met some interesting people and you just end up hanging out for the day or getting coffee or something uh, so it's a good way to to introduce you to people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. Absolutely, um, can broaden your circle quite effectively. It does. It does. Yeah. Like I, I appreciate it for that point of view, but I think on the whole, if you're looking at it from a a dating and relationship point of view, I think it's really kind of spoiled it for a lot of people. If you're listening to the show and you actually are interested in relationships and modern relationships, there's an incredible woman who's originally from Belgium and she lives in New York. Her name's Esther Perel. I think that's how you pronounce it. And she's written a couple of books on modern relationships and she gives a, a lot of talks and podcasts. She's actually got this podcast, Kate, where 
she records couples. She's a therapist in New York, and she's super, super smart. And she records therapy sessions, obviously with their permission, of couples counseling. And it's it's pretty interesting. So it's pretty interesting to eavesdrop on these couples therapy sessions. So um, that's an interesting concept. Having like people open their open up onto a podcast is is a big deal. Yeah, look, I mean, like I would never do that if I was sort of, you know, going through an experience like that. But it's obviously something very personal, but obviously some people do. And she's such a smart woman. And she, she, she makes a point about modern relationships of that, you know, in previous generations, that everything was quite predetermined in terms of modern relationships, the path to go down. And she says, today, everything's negotiated you know, which puts the mm. pressure on the relationship, which is good because you can create something you want, but it's, it means there's the pressure to, to negotiate the boundaries and what type of relationship and where we're going to live. And, and, and it's so, but she's, yeah, I enjoy listening to her podcasts and, and uh, her talk. She was at South by Southwest recently and she gave some talks, which I just viewed online. I wasn't at South by Southwest. Um, yeah, so Esther Perel. Is, uh, check that out if you're interested into the, the lay of the land of, of modern relationships. So what, what else is, is, is that it from the F8? Basically, yeah. Messenger, WhatsApp, they're going to have a few updates as well. Um, not as dramatic as Messenger, but they're still doing really well. And they're going to have like group video calls and add stickers to stories and minor sort of UI stuff, I think. I got the general idea. But yeah, they're, kind of, they're, they're making updates on all of their products. In France, WhatsApp, or in Paris, I should say, WhatsApp is everything. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely everything. It's, it's, it's the tool of choice here. Um, it's so interesting. Like, I rarely use WhatsApp, but Messenger has just grown and grown and grown. I spend a lot of time on Messenger now. Yeah. So I, I can see how, like, you could pick a messaging app. Uh-huh. And if it was big in your network and your age group and stuff, it would just take off. And I think for me, it's been Messenger, but for... For other jurisdictions, other age groups, it might be WhatsApp. Yeah, definitely my my age group, it's definitely WhatsApp. I I read also something about Instagram, Kate. I don't know if this came out at F8, that they're going to link the the ability to buy directly in Instagram. Yeah, they've been talking about that for a while. I think it might already... They've definitely got the the links that you can go straight through and and purchase from the site um, with the advertising. So, yeah, like paid Instagram advertising has a little banner at the bottom of the image. It says, like, buy now or learn more or something. And I, I believe that actually goes through to the website of the seller, though. It doesn't actually go straight through Instagram. Okay. Yeah, because I know in a lot of countries they use Instagram and WhatsApp as e-commerce platforms. So uh, yep. it, it, it makes sense, um, I believe, in places like Kuwait and, you know, you know, business on Instagram and WhatsApp is a, is a big deal. So it's... Uh, very interesting how these technologies get used in different ways. It's, it's, it's fascinating. They're just organically, they get started to start to be used in different ways. Yeah, definitely. Okay, great. That is the news for this week, episode 119. Hey, if you have a startup or a business and you want some free advertising, drop us a little audio and tell us about yourself. And we will play it. Make sure it's 10, 10 seconds, just really quick and doesn't cost anything. So we're happy to give you a little bit of a push. You can also email us at podcast.itsamonkey.com. You can tweet us. You can follow us. You can sign up for email updates when the new podcast gets announced. And uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, you can go to iTunes and 
tell iTunes, leave a little review there, and it will help others find this podcast as well, and that we will really appreciate it. So we're going to take a, a couple of second breaks, and a um, couple of minutes break, then we are going to come back with an interview that I did with Mark Littlewood, who is the CEO of Business of Software Conference. I spoke to him when he was in Cambridge, UK. I was in Sydney, and we had an inter- interesting chat about um, the software industry, so stick around. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high-quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclist in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. So we chat about everything related to tech, startups, the tech economy. We cover everything from social media to the blockchain. Um, this podcast has been going for a few years. We're up to nearly 120 episodes. So we've covered a lot of different ground um, over the years. One area of the world we actually don't talk a lot about, or we haven't spoken a lot about, actually, is the UK. We cover, obviously, Sydney and, and Australia a little bit, uh, San Francisco and New York a lot, a little bit of other parts. We've had some uh, Israeli entrepreneurs on the show. But the UK we haven't touched at all. And, of course, the UK has been in the press lately for all the, for all the wrong reasons, I guess, were around the Facebook uh, data and privacy issues with a company called Cambridge Analytica. And funnily enough, my guest today is from Cambridge. So I'm speaking to Mark Littlewood, who's the CEO of the Business of Software Conference. And Mark is actually based in Cambridge. No relationship, I would imagine, with Cambridge Analytica. It's just a pure coincidence that that's uh, the timing of your location. Hi, Kevin. Very nice to be here. Um, I'm Mark Littlewood. And yes, I am in Cambridge. I'm not very analytical, though. So um, (laughs) I think that uh, maybe gets me off the hook. Um, Cambridge is a relatively small uh, town. There's only 100,000 people here. So, uh, you know, we all know a few people that uh, have have been involved in that particular organization. But uh, yeah, interesting times indeed. And uh, so, so pleased to be here. Um, Great to see you. A thriving Australian podcast. Oh yeah, it's, it's uh, you know we we you probably don't hear all that much about Australia compared relative to other parts of the world being in in Europe and closer to the US. But we have a lot going on here. No, but anyway, we're going to be talking tech. Mark, you're the CEO of the Business of Software Conference. I believe your your conferences have been running for about twelve years or so. They have indeed. So the first. Business of Software was set up by my partner, Neil Davidson, who was the founder of a, uh, an organically grown, a bootstrapped business, software business in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And he built the company up to about 30 people and then realized that he was responsible for 
29 people plus himself and wanted to build a build a better company and he looked around at various conferences to go to to learn about building and scaling a software business and really felt that everything was either sort of very startupy or very pitchy or very investor focused and so being the entrepreneur that he was he decided to set up his own conference and he thought well who would be the the best people to speak to and he kind of came up with people like Jeffrey Moore and Don Norman and Joel Spolsky all sorts of people um, got in touch with them invited them along to the first conference and I suppose the rest is the rest is history we've we've continued to try to help people think about the questions they need to ask when they're scaling when they're growing we cover everything about building a great piece of software and building a great software business except code and finance and code is a sort of a, a matter of religion for lots of people um, you know they they have the languages they use and the the, the the platforms they want to to build on and there's not much we can do to to get in, involved in that debate everything from selling and marketing and creating a culture and product strategy and and also increasingly and uh, I suppose we've always been a, a little bit like this helping founders grow as leaders and helping them get in touch with some of the darker feelings that they might have as uh, entrepreneurs everyone says very blithely ah oh, entrepreneurship's a roller coaster and it's up and down but uh, you don't really appreciate what a lonely situation you're in as a as a CEO as a founder quite often until you take a step back and uh, and ask for ask for help and ask for support from other people of course i actually read something funnily enough today i collect articles that i don't get around to reading and i archive them and i'll just browse them, through them. <laughs> <laughs> of course and that pile never really gets a dent in it just grows over the years but there was an article about the mental health challenges of founders and entrepreneurs and there was some stat i didn't dig into how they calculated this but 49 percent of uh, founder entrepreneurs do have mental health challenges so it's great to hear that you're covering that issue issue and of course that's also tied in with the whole masculinity debate and and you know that 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 challenge of, of having to show a, a strong confident front to your team to your partner to your team members but when you have a challenge how do you share that so that's really great that you um, consider that in your conferences and you know mark I, I, as, as as you were talking I was reflecting back to when I started my first businesses many many years ago and compared to then the amount of resources today is just absolutely fantastic I mean I might get into a bit of trouble for saying this but if there's a young person listening to this I would just slam through my degree as quick as possible just to get that piece of paper and um, then all the rest of the learning is 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 out there on, on your YouTubes at your conferences in your reddits and in, in your slack channels there's the the amount of resources is just quite quite phenomenal and so exciting that you can access the smartest people in the world their thoughts their writings for nothing, literally nothing, which is just such an exciting time to be someone uh, interested in growing and learning and, and being a better version of yourself and professionally and personally the whole time. Yeah, I would agree, actually, although that comes with quite a, a caveat for me. I think mm -hmm. there is a huge amount of information out there. Not all of it's good. So you know, it doesn't matter whether, you know, I think there's a sort of a, a, a sort of a wave of a wave of what I would call celebrity CEOs um, who are 
and they're very good at blogging and speaking at events and turn up to talk on four different panels on the same day at different events and you know are talking about how fantastic their their business is and then not necessarily spending the time running the business and actually dealing with the internal stuff that uh, they might do and so um, I think there is you're absolutely right there are some phenomenal resources and there are some phenomenal free resources out there we make all of our um, business and software conference talks available online for example um, is that free it's free it's free it's a very good price we release them over the um so we publish them all in one go after uh -huh. the event and the attendees at the event get access to all of them straight away uh -huh. but we then release them with a transcript with the slides online free at businessofsoftware.org and also then do hangouts so we invite the speakers back to um, come and ask, uh, answer questions and, and uh, pick up the conversation and people can attend that um, wherever they are free as well. So we're really philanthropists <laughs> dressed up as... <laughs> yeah, you, you're, we've you guys and Facebook both, models. right? I think probably on slightly different scale. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as, as Adam Smith said, right, capitalism has this invisible hand that drags us in the direction of, of good and prosperity and improvement. But uh, um, in terms of the conferences, I mean, what have you noticed over the years? I mean, actually, before, before that, I, the, the, I bring up that point. What, one thing that popped to mind when you said, you know, the, the challenge is finding the right information. It's almost like we're moving from a world where the, the problem was scarcity and how to, how to access information and resources to the one of abundance where we've got to yes. uh, cur curate it properly. But there are tools, of course. You know, I've got a Twitter list with founders and tech people, and I sit with my TweetDeck open during the day, and and that column, or I have a few different columns of people whose tweets I don't want to miss, and the tech startup column and a blockchain column, and I can actually I've curated that list so that um, it's it's pretty high signal, and I I pick up a few really interesting articles during the day. So there are actually ways of doing that. So you've just got to be there are tools, and you've got to spend a little bit of time sort of structuring your world and also based on the fact as well you mentioned you know a lot of celebrity ceos i find there's also the wannapreneur has become you know people that love going <laughs> love going to conferences and the idea of being an entrepreneur is is great but you know the glamour is is really a lot less than or especially for most of us mere mortals and not the rock star Mark Zuckerberg's it's, and Jack Dorsey's of the world. The rest of us are, 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 are meeting with accountants and, 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 and uh, doing a good job or trying to good, do a good job of the number one responsibility of the CEO, which is to make sure that you don't run out of money. That's, that's your first pecking order of, the, of, sort of, uh, of, of events in, on your agenda every single day to make sure that, that there's money yes. in the bank, right? And to, yes, to put on a brave face, I suppose, as well. I think one of the things that I've noticed talking to entrepreneurs is, is you know, one of the things that almost all successful people will tell you is that you can't underestimate how important it is to be positive and to be or give the appearance of being open and calm and happy, um, even if the entire company is falling down around your uh, around your around your ears sort of thing that uh, you know there's a real there's a real value and I think a lot of the 
the successful entrepreneurs, the, the successful leaders um, have that ability to um, maintain a degree of degree of serenity almost when uh, when things aren't going well. And I think one of and there's so many tools these days, and I mean even the the concept of mindfulness has become very popular. I find that has helped me a lot. But I also find you know the team members, you know, gone are the days where team members uh, would deal with um, non-transparency, and and often team members know what's going on in the business when when the, when the proverbial hits the fan. And I was having a chat with a friend yesterday who's at a company that's having significant financial challenges and i and i said you know um he's in a pretty senior role and i said you know the ceo should really just do two things one be transparent about the challenges and but importantly talk about what the way forward is you know i think yeah uh, I, I think you do have to be honest in those tricky situations as well right you can't just you can't just give the attitude that everything's okay and everyone sees that the building's on fire yes <laughs> It's so true. It's so true. I think um, there there are some companies that have done this really well. There are some individuals that have done this really well. I think when you know, I don't know. I don't know whether you've always been running your own businesses or whether you've worked for others. But um, it's incredibly obvious when things aren't going well to mm. the people that aren't supposed to know. There's a there's a sort of a smell in the office, and uh, you know people people pick up on. And, and uh, they're not stupid, and I think increasingly people expect to be to be treated as adults um, and to be given the information. I mean, particularly in technology, where I think if you look at the average, or if you look at the look at the intelligence levels, look at the education levels of the people in the in the industry, you know, they're they're smart people and they work things out, and it's pretty obvious when things aren't going right. So. To have people running around saying, "Oh, bad night for the iceberg, full steam ahead," sort of thing, just doesn't just doesn't work these days. I just think there's a one of the things that we've seen, and it's you know it's it's not universal by any stretch of the imagination, but there's a sort of a movement in some companies for for radical tran, uh, transparency. I'm thinking of so Peldi for balsamic uh, wireframe mockups tool publish their revenue and all sorts of information about their uh, their company for uh, a lot of years. Uh, they've stopped doing it now. I think uh, there are other companies um, like Buffer, who I'm sure you've come across of as course, a um, and I'm sort of sitting in your space. I think, you know, the really interesting thing about Buffer for me is just their extraordinary commitment to transparency. I mean, you know how much everybody is earning in the business. I think that's quite a, it's quite a, a, for, a strange for, thing. For a private company as well. I mean, sometimes with public yeah. companies, you get that level of granularity. I've, I've got mixed feelings about, you know, unconditional transparency for a variety of reasons. I mean, the one reason is with my team members, I, I don't want them to concern themselves with bigger picture issues unless it's really part of their job or they want to. You know, I can guarantee them that their their job is secure for as much as a job can be secure in any startup for a you know, whatever, a year or a few months or what yeah. you know, I I don't want them to just to, to analyze financials and compare what's going on and, and you know, and I wonder if transparency could make them think, you know, is this company a good situation, bad situations? I, I want to create a little bubble in a sense of security for themselves. 
I want to wear the stress, like Phil um, Libin of uh, Evernote said. You know, he's the, the 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 sponge, the stress sponge, and I don't I don't want them to concern themselves with that uh, those big issues. And I'm wondering if transparency would actually have that sort of unintended consequence. I I don't know. If you were working um, at a company, would you would you get encouraged by that absolute radical transparency? I don't know. It's hard for me to it's hard for me to try picture. If I was working at a, I think some sort of internal transparency is definitely valued, and you appreciate that that you're trusted and you're treated like an adult. But full transparency of salaries and and aspects like that, and and all sorts of costs and expenses, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I think it's a fascinating experiment. I can't see it, it taking off. Yeah, it is. And that that doesn't mean that it's not right for them. It probably means that it's not right for most organizations. And I certainly think that if you start your business in a particular way, moving to absolute transparency would be virtually impossible. So I think, you know, if you're going to be radically transparent, there are a number of things that have to be the case. And so so I think one of them is that you start with full transparency and that then will attract people that have a certain mindset that are okay with that. Um, I think if you turn it, if you just kind of switch transparency on, I think it would freak a lot of people out. Um, I think the other thing that you need to have to be consistently transparent is to be on a, an upward, you know, your, your success arc is, (laughs) is, is, Heading upwards, and if things start getting bad, it's not fun being uh, transparent when times are tough. No, <laughs> <laughs> ask any public company when the proverbial hits, and boy, oh, it's not absolutely. fun being transparent then. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I love, I love different ways of doing things. I think if I think about trends in the industry, one of the things I, I, I think that you know I've seen over the last ten years is more and more people doing things like bootstrapping as a conscious decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think bootstrapping is one of those slightly challenging words, and it, it, it means so many things to different people. And for certain sections of the tech community, uh, bootstrapping is for losers. You know, it's for oh lifestyle people. And, you know, I think that's a terrible, terrible you way know- of thinking about bootstrapping you, you don't have um, the, you don't have the pedigree perhaps to to raise funds you know but uh, that's complete um it's just utter nonsense on stilts i think you know the biggest the biggest thing that's happened to the tech ecosystem in the last 10 years is the deification of venture capital and the vcs are now the gods that come in and wave their little magic fairy wands and bestow millions of dollars on a founder to go off to to work his 100-hour week or her 100-hour week, you know, recruit a team, bring them all into the organization, really kind of drive them hard and, and, and grow. And you have to grow and scale for the venture firms to make a return. Now, venture capital to me is neither necessary nor evil. Um, it it's just that there is a lot of money, venture uh, venture dollars around these days. More and more money is going into the into the asset class, and it gets a lot of attention. It's really easy to write an article about a 
pet walking company getting $60 million and having an angle on it. It could be, wow, this is incredible, $60 million for this pet walking company. It's really going great guns. Whoever knew this was a market or $60 million for uh, a pet walking app. What a ridiculous thing. What's the world coming to? Blah, blah, blah. It's really easy to spin the stories around the money. Much harder to spin stories around, hey, here's Kevin and he's got his head down and he's working really hard. Um, he's got a team of 20 people and they're solving these problems and they're not particularly interesting problems for people. Those businesses have value and have long-term value. Venture businesses tend to be either very successful or have a bit of a collapse. And I think as, as entrepreneurs, we should be uh, we should really spend some time thinking about what kind of business we want to run what sort of risk profile that we we have and cut our cloth and 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 set our strategy based on based on that you can have i think one of the great things about bootstrap businesses is is companies like uh, atlassian for example who we know scott Farquhar reasonably well. Um, he's spoken and he's attended a few of the business and software conferences. You know, they were up at $100 million revenue before they before they took any funding. And a lot of that um, funding I, that they took actually was to buy out existing shareholders. It didn't even go in as investment. So None of it, none of it went as investment, uh, as I understand right, it, the so. $60 million from Axel. So it was all money off the table, which is, which is great. And I think if mm. you... Well, very unusual, but actually increasingly, um, I mean, if you think about other people who are had been very anti, anti-venture anti capital, Joel Spolsky is a great example. You know, Fog Creek, who um, have a number of um, companies that they've spun out of. Um, Trello. Fog Creek. Uh, so Trello, yeah. um, Stack Overflow. Yep. Yes, exactly. They've um, them for a huge see, amount. Well, you see... Huge, I think it was $427 million. I don't know why that number sticks in my... um, But it's it's something like that. Um, And then people were writing up Trello as if it was a big disaster. And there was this sort of... (laughs) Yeah, $425 million. Oh, well, there you go. I'm I'm two out. So maybe that's exchange rate or something. Um, you know how how is how is selling a business of that sort of type for 425 million dollars a failure you know it it just doesn't make any sense it's a fantastic business I mean, know the know the founders the ceos uh, or the ceo reasonably well again he's a he's another uh, um long time attendee uh, and in fact we we had a session with him about 2 months before the the sale and he was talking about all the things that they've done at Trello to really mess it up. It's ridiculous that companies like that should be seen, you know, as failing because they haven't got unicorn status. Because actually you can get to you can be a unicorn and as a founder make far less money than um you know and 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 have all of the pressure and all of the stress and end up with far less than uh, if you were actually worth 20, 30 million or something, you know, and didn't have any external funds.
Well, Mark, Trello received just over $10 million in funding. So to have $10 million in funding and have an exit of over $400 million is a unresounding success, or sorry, a resounding yes. success, I should say. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, back to your point about um, the the idea of raising money and, and uh, you know, the criticism of bootstrapped and, and uh, being lifestyle businesses, there is an alternative school of thought, thankfully, that pushes up strongly against the venture-funded sort of Silicon Valley model, and that's very much championed by people like David Hanemeyer Hansen of uh, Basecamp, which are another crew that haven't really taken. They've taken some funding at a late stage from uh, Jeff Bezos, but besides that, they haven't taken much. And a lot of that, yeah. sco- and a lot of that school of thought talks about how every day that you survive, particularly profit- profitably without any funding without any investment is a, is a huge success it's it's you know you only take funding when you really it's like surgery right it's only it's yeah. it's it's a final solution to a problem that you can't solve in any other which way and i i have this discussion a lot because we bootstrap manage flitter we've never taken any debt or equity funding and people ask me a lot of the time you know, will you guys ever take funding or why don't you guys take funding? And I, I, I never say never, but firstly, as a CEO, right, not having investors and not having to look for funding, you've actually got more bandwidth to work on the business and work with your team. And that's where the real value is going to come in, right? When, yes. If you receive a chunk of funding, I mean, that's the work just starts then and, and you've spent yes. all this this headspace and all this bandwidth, you know, getting the investment. But but as you said, um, you know, the model, the Silicon Valley model is very much home run or nothing. And that's worked well for that part of the world. It's, it's, you've had your Facebooks and your Googles and, and your Instagrams and, and your Twitters have all been based on that model. But most companies in the world are not venture-backed and are actually bootstrapped. And if you listen to this podcast, and it's not it's it's not necessarily all about the funding. It really isn't. There's ways that you can. And I I, I mean I'm I'm speaking obviously as a you know my, my own experience, but the satisfaction mm-hmm. of building a small business. We are a lot smaller than Buffer. We are a lot smaller than Hootsuite. But the satisfaction that we've built it on our own terms is 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 fantastic. And I can put the interests of yes. the team. And our customers really first and foremost, and of course, there's been many times where CEOs have been kicked out of their own business. I, mean, I think some of the Facebook investors are trying to even squeeze Mark, Mark Zuckerberg out, but he's structured with dual class shares, so it's incredibly difficult to do that. Uh, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, the list of, you know, bootstrap companies, I mean, as I said, venture capital is neither necessary nor evil. Mm. And that's a good way of looking at it. It gets a bad name for from some people, but largely because people don't understand what you know the game is. But if you look at Joel Spolsky, I mean, he was he was quite anti venture capital. Grew Stack Exchange and then took thirty million dollars funding or something. You know, and at that point, I mean, I, I said to Joel, "Hey, what's going on? You know, you've been so uh, vocal in your opposition to this kind of you know the whole." Kind of, you don't have to. You don't have to raise funds to uh, be successful. He's like, oh well, we got to a certain point in the business. You know, we got mm-hmm. to a certain point where we were very clear what the business did. We were very clear that when you put a dollar in this end, you got five dollars at that end. So we couldn't really optimize. 
that much more exactly mm. but uh, by taking money you can scale and you don't lose control and i think you know a lot of lot of funding is about taking investment and at the moment you have investment you have other bosses so you need to make sure that you understand what their what the uh, goal of those people is and what they're uh, looking to get out of um, of, of any uh, relationship and you know really it kind of comes down to getting a return on their on their funds mark tell me a little, we we don't hear much about english startups in the english ecosystem i have to be honest i'm trying to think of, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think as i said you know when i think of england it's all about the music and, yes and when i think software i obviously think um, silicon valley new york israel um, obviously australia where i'm at but that's a, a bias i you know, there's even a couple of new zealand yeah. companies like zero and um, that i'm familiar with but when i think of english software companies or english products I actually, I'm embarrassed to say I can't actually think of one off the top of my head. Wow, that's fantastic. So this is really fascinating because, I mean, I, I know... Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> Cambridge Analytica. So I think they're consultants, aren't they, rather than right. software. Yeah. But, I mean, there's... <laughs> what are the big... The big companies that you might have heard of would be you know, companies like Sage, which is okay, a, heard you know, of a much more established accounting, um, much more established accounting system mm -hmm. than than Zero. Although it's incredibly hard to understand, you know, we have a bunch of uh, web companies. So, you know, there are a lot of kind of e-commerce type businesses over here. Um, think about uh, Deliveroo. Ah, uh, Deliveroo. Which, yep, yep. Um, a Deliveroo down in Australia they as actually, well. Now. They actually bought. Was it Deliveroo that bought um, Menulog? I think it was an English company that bought Menulog, which was Menulog was a home. Almost grown, certainly. And it was for a massive, massive amount, nearly one billion dollars, which was just an incredible exit. Um, but I. Yeah. I don't know if it was the Deliveroo crew or it was another sort of English company, Menulog acquisition by Just Eat. Is that an English company? Uh, UK Just listed company, yep. yep. UK listed, it was Danish actually originally. But okay. uh, so it's, it's fascinating. I think, you know, you've got companies like Autonomy, mm -hmm. which was bought by uh, HP and then HP sued the founder uh, and then sold it to, they sort of split it out of HP, sold it to someone, and then it was sold to Microfocus. So it's been a, you know, it's been quite an interesting ride that one. When HP bought them, I think they paid eleven and a half billion or something. So mm -hmm. it's a reasonable, a reasonable sort of size business. But it's it's fascinating. There aren't a lot of kind of what you would call household name. Consumer tech. It's a consumer tech's not not like like consumer tech's very San Francisco, right? And and it's it's um it's also not really very you know New York's very advertising. Israel's very sort of deep technology and hardware. So the UK probably what business enterprise would you say or or European focus? So certainly or? enterprise software stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on with. You know the emerging, emerging memes, AI, machine learning. Uh, so DeepMind actually would be a really good example of a UK company. 
so Demis Hassabis uh, founded founded that. Uh, it was bought by Google for four hundred odd million, um, and is the thing that has been playing. All DeepMind seems to do is play games all day, but um, it's playing them to a pretty high standard. So, so DeepMind actually beat a human at Go. Was that a year or so ago? I think it was more than more than a year ago already. Possibly, yes, probably two two years ago in that case. Um, you know, and those those sorts of things are really. I would say we have a sort of thinking about the the companies in Cambridge. So Amazon have an R and D center here. Apple have an R and D center here. Google have got some stuff up here. I mean, they've got campuses everywhere. But a lot of these organisations are buying into the talent in, in somewhere like Cam- Cambridge is 55, 60 miles outside London. The cost of hiring devs is probably, you know, it's probably 70% of the cost of, of, of London. So it's not wow. cheap. But, but it's, sorry, I thought it was the other, the other way around. I, I thought it was, it's, yeah, that, that makes a bit, a bit more 70%. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a discount. Yeah. It's a little bit of a discount, but they're not they're not cheap. But you know, they there are a lot of very very good um, technical people in Cambridge, and you know the university produces some. But we also then have you know a number of consultancies and a number of other established software businesses. So you know, being being in software is a very you know it's a recognisable career, and it's a significant number of people you know, as a percentage of the population are involved in technology. So, you know, you tend to get better. And I think what Cambridge is really good at on on one level is sort of solving some of those big problems about technology, sort of some of the some of the hard stuff. Um, London, I would characterize, there's obviously kind of deep tech and deep science going on. Uh, You've also then got massive massive um, facilities for you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So that, and they are really hoovering up people for, for jobs. And then a much, you know, the kind of consumer stuff, and, and I'd say London is bigger on consumer, but um, the consumer stuff in London tends not to be that meaningful on a global basis. And it's, it's really quite, it's quite fascinating hearing you talk about the UK and sort of say that, you know, it, it doesn't really come up on your radar because, you know, there are a lot of people kind of who, you know, would, would genuinely view London as being the second um, place outside Silicon Valley. So, you know, fascinating that that's not necessarily the the impression that uh, no. uh, you have from, from the other side of the world. And that's, uh, that's, that's funny. But I think, you know, it, London is a, it's it's one of those places. It's a nice nice place to live. It attracts a certain type of person. So I'm just thinking of a guy called Peter Bauer from South Africa, who mm-hmm. and I moved to London, founded a company called Mimecast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a Nasdaq listed company now, kind of three billion dollars market cap. You know, there are a bunch of those. I mean, it's almost it's it's a bit silly to call something that's three billion dollars market cap uh, small. But, um, you know, I mean, those are those are businesses. I mean, unless you do kind of corporate emails, you probably won't have come across Mimecast. So there are there are quite a lot of those businesses that are down doing quite dull things that nobody really wants to talk about. But they just 
make life easier and you know make things more successful for people i think i think that's the thing with silicon valley they've um, they've been so strong on consumer tech that it skewed what the tech industry actually means right and the, and the tech yes. industry is a lot more than consumer tech boy there's just and and you know atlassian is interesting how they've managed to break out and even though they are a boring enterprise project management set of tools essentially but they've maybe yeah. their story's a little bit unusual two young founders bootstrapped so they've managed to break through but it's 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 a relatively boring sort of product compared to instagram or you know fitbit or you know i i i agree but then i don't want to agree because actually i think you know atlassian <laughs> atlassian should be getting you know a lot more uh, a lot more attention if you're thinking about you know big big software companies but you know it's hardly a household name and in, of course, in australia the, the, it's probably i definitely wouldn't say it's household but it's definitely yeah. anyone involved in in business they've heard of it yes but, and um yeah to, um I would like to also know just culturally, you know, in Australia, we've got, which you're probably familiar with the term, uh, Mark, the tall puppy syndrome. And there's a lot of talk in our industry about how that negatively affects people wanting to give it a go because success is criticized and people, you know, don't want to become too too big for your boots. You know, it was actually out of all people, Bono from YouTube coming from Ireland, he made an interesting statement many years ago about tall puppy. And he said, you know, in Ireland, if you would see a guy on the hill in a mansion, you would say, one day I'm going to get that guy and screw him over. And in America, if you see a guy in a mansion, you'd say, one day I'm going to be that guy. You know, I'm curious to know. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a while this was a this was a while back, so you know Australia has evolved a little bit, but there still is a tall puppy. We come from a very humble culture, and America is is you know comes from a very much more um, entrepreneurial, aspiring culture. Where does the UK sit at the moment? I haven't been to the UK for a long time. I'm curious to know. So I think hubris is one. I think people tend to look up to successful people but successful people that are are truly successful i think mm -hmm. one of the things that australians and brits um probably sort of share is a you know a lack of a lack of time for bullshitters and big bullshit you know, detectors well, well yeah exactly detectors. exactly and i think you know those those companies that go off and win lots of awards, and you know in the in the sort of entrepreneurial competitions and this that and the other. I think people quite often, when those companies don't work out, are quite pleased because you know there's a sort of sense that someone's kind of run after the wrong thing. Um, so I'm based at a at a company called um, Redgate, which is uh, where Neil, the um, the other business software guy, is based or was based. They never go in for the fast-growing companies or the uh, entrepreneur of the year or whatever. They enter the best companies to work for competition mm -hmm. every year because that's what that's that's the values and that's what they want to sort of project. I think I think the sort of companies that go off where you know you win entrepreneur of the year and this that and the other and don't forget you have to enter those competitions you know, so there is an ego thing about it when those companies don't work out people are often i knew they were full of 
BS. You can only bullshit on the, the entrepreneur journey, the business journey for so long, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And so I think, you know, we are, we are all pretty cynical. I think people value creating something over having a number attached to a bank account in the UK in general. I think the attitude and the environment here is very positive, but people tend not to like people that get too full of themselves. Right. I think it's probably it's probably similar to Australia. I mean, I actually was uh, yeah. grew up in South Africa and South Africa South Africa is a bit of a mixture, you know. Mm. It's, it's a much more culturally complex place and it's much more difficult to pin down what South African culture actually is and there's probably a lot you've probably come across a lot of South Africans in London, especially in the tech and the finance industry. They tend to and even in the investment bank industry there's in the in London, so you're probably familiar with it. But Australia definitely, yeah, I think cynicism I think, you know, tying in with that cynicism, one area, Mark, where I think we could get a lot better at transparency is government. I think government is where we should demand that there's absolute glass walls into the visibility of exactly what goes on. And that's that would have huge, huge value. Private companies, you know, yes and no, you know, how it impacts the users, et cetera, can be argued. It's, it's a bit more um, slippery, but... Um, I'm, you know, that's something that we can learn from these experiments in transparency um, to benefit from that, that, that it will really flow into accountability. Well, I, it's, it's interesting. I think government is one of those areas that could, could be far more transparent. And I, I think of Brexit or Brexit, as I uh, refer to it, as being the, the biggest, most disastrous waterfall project of all time. <laughs> and of course, if for the probably the younger people listening, waterfall is what existed before <laughs> agile methodology. I don't, I don't even know if they still teach waterfall, Mark. Maybe they do. I don't, I don't know. I, my my daughter's learning about it at the moment, but okay. that's in geography. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's geography. Kind of yeah, but, uh, <laughs> um, oh, it's I... it's staggering as this sort of right. This date, everything has to be happened. What's got to happen? Uh, don't know. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's it's sort of, it's fascinating. I mean, that's something that's going to have, it's taken a number of years and it's going to have repercussions and effects that kind of, that, that you know, they're decades, decades down the line. And there seems to be this sort of, right, well, we had a sort of slightly, we had a slightly weird uh, referendum that was very close with some with a very woolly question and that is then being used to justify everything that's that's kind of going on and and we just sort of feel like we're really kind of muddling through and it's a shame that um, governments can't turn around and go do you know what now we know this <laughs> this data shows us that x y and z is happening I, I, it's it's staggering to me actually um that uh, there isn't uh, a better setup there. Politics Although, is, that, that being politics said, is I mean, really th- broken around the world. It's, it's yeah. in my opinion, it's really broken. And that's one thing, you know, the promise of technology has solved so many problems. And I think the next phase would be fantastic if software can solve the problem of politics and, uh, you know, whether it's via the blockchain yeah. and having more more finely grained voting or, or just even just if we just, just rework it at just the system of how we can attract the right people to get involved into politics that would solve half of mm. the problem 
Yes, I agree. I agree. Although uh, powerful forces at work. I mean, even when technology is applied to governments on a relatively kind of small scale. So I'm thinking about uh, there was a the government digital service, which was a UK thing that was aiming to you know, make government technology a little bit more kind of agile and flexible, open up some of the kind of uh, contracts and tenders that the very big organisations were kind of sucking up to to smaller organisations. And it had a bit of kind of cabinet backing. So, so, you know, ministerial backing when it when it got going. But, you know, huge amounts of sort of vested interests lobbying against it and as soon as the the minister that was actually you know it was their pet project and they were in the in the cabinet was out then it sort of pretty much fell apart and yeah it's a real shame actually i don't think we're going to fix politics in uh, in this one i'm afraid Kevin. <laughs> well i think you know what we learned so much from software is is putting it into the process and taking the human judgment out of it as much as we can and i think politics there's still way too many people Involved, and I think we can improve process and technologies that um, can definitely squeeze out some of the human influence. But um, it's probably not my expert area, so uh, I'll, I'll leave that as is. Mark, Mark, tell us about your 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 conferences, um, your your most uh, sort of your, your upcoming conferences. Where, when, how? I'm I'm sure a lot of people cool. listening to would I would love to come to. I'm I'm a total conference junkie the right conferences I've, I've been to TechCrunch Disrupt many times I love it I love listening oh, to smart to <laughs> I, I've actually got a lot out of them um, I love listening to smart people I looked at your agendas and you, you seem to have a lot of smart people so I'm hoping I can make it to your conference one day as a delicate or speaker or both really great it would be great to uh, great to have you I think so our next conference is business software conference europe which uh-huh. is may 21st to 22nd we've got people like wade foster speaking uh-huh. uh, wade is the ceo of zapier okay. um, great product great product he took a one million dollar seed funding round and hasn't uh-huh. taken any funding since so this was in 2011 and of course that leads into another very relevant topic because i believe they are they a full remote team like we almost a full remote team they don't have an office. There are mm-hmm. 150 people, fully remote, getting up to about $50 million revenue now. Um, so, yeah, some really interesting lessons there. We've got a guy called Stephen Allert who ran the largest organically grown uh, UK software business to date. So that was it uh, went public um, in the late 90s as a company called Micromuse and was worth about $7.5 billion when it was sold. We have um, a real focus on, I suppose, growing sustainably and using money wisely to sort mm-hmm. of scale uh, an organization. So we've got, uh, have you come across TransferWise? That's a UK Of course, thing. of course. In fact, I think Kate, my co-host, if I remember correctly, she spoke about it on a previous podcast or personally to me, I can't remember, and, and how she, lo- she's in Canada now from Australia. She's, so she pushes a bit of money around and I think she uses TransferWise. Oh, right. So TransferWise is fascinating. Their VP of growth is talking about product-driven growth rather than spending money on marketing. Um, so when he, uh, when he came on board, they they were spending a huge amount of venture capital funding that they'd raised on marketing. And when they started looking at the numbers, 
despite all the money they were spending on marketing, they realized that 90% of their new customers were being recommended by mm-hmm. existing customers. Money down the drain yeah. on the marketing side, right? Yeah. And and yeah. as I always I mean, it, it, and I and as I always say in the software business, the best form of marketing is a great product. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. and that's why we focus our resources on having fantastic technical team that build a great product because the marketing is is a nice to have after that. But you know, you just got to look at Google, yeah. Facebook, Twitter. How much have they spent on marketing? Probably close to yeah. zero, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think well, they're spending more now, I suppose, it, once perhaps. they've just become established. But it's, yeah, that getting there and that viral loop, I think, is really is 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 really important. So uh, Nilan is going to be talking about how they're spending a lot less on marketing now and getting a lot more back, uh, which is, I know, it's always a good uh, thing to to talk about. We've got uh, Laura Roder, who, again, is probably someone that you're aware of in so much as she runs a company called Meet Edgar. Of course, yeah. Um, also a nice success story. They've done well in the in, in our sort yeah, of segment. they've done... They've done that, and she's actually got a new company that she's getting going now called mm-hmm. RoboPig. Mm-hmm. And RoboPig is essentially alerts. So I don't know if you've come across a company called – my mind's gone blank on it. I apologize. It basically sort of sends alerts to if you've got problems with your servers or, or – uh, Sort of um, like um, Victor Ops or one of those. Something like that. Yeah, it's a big industry these days, alerting and monitoring. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big industry, a lot, lot of venture funding, a lot of, lot of well-backed businesses. Her talk is actually about why not having external funding can be a a real advantage to you. And I think you know that's that's something that I'm really um, excited about. But uh, yeah, I mean the whole whole range. And then the US event is in October this year, so it's the first to the third in boston massachusetts which we absolutely love so fantastic i love i love the theme of the conference and and uh, i love the fact that they know sort of corporate speakers it's all people that have done it right and that's when you really learn is when people that have done it so i i'm gonna try at some stage come to one of your conferences mark but um i really do awesome I, I do appreciate taking so much of your time on the podcast. Um, enjoy lovely Cambridge and all the great music um, in that part of the world. And um, thanks for oh, joining thank us today much. on the podcast. Kevin, really, really pleasure to be uh, involved and uh, look forward to uh, look forward to staying in touch and uh, to seeing you at a conference. Take good care. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate Marks, one of these colorful English characters that um, I definitely would like to meet in person. We had, a, we had a, a nice chat. I think he was a little bit taken aback when I said I haven't really heard of many startups from England. Um, but I haven't. Have you? 
No, I can't say it comes straight to the top of my head. Yeah, so um, we're all heavily biased by Silicon Valley and obviously where, where we live as well in Sydney, Australia. We know a few from there, Canva, Campaign Monitor, Atlassian. So we're a little bit biased about our own location. But I have no doubt it's a big, smart country. Uh, actually, on CheckDog, which is our product that uh, still exists to monitor websites for typos, etc., we have quite a lot of UK customers because I think they care more about spelling than some other English-speaking jurisdictions. I think maybe it's you know being England and, and more classic English-focused. They care more about typos, where some people just do not care about typos on their website. Yeah, I think it's important, though. I'm kind of erring on the side of England on this one. I think it's very important. It's like the broken window theory, right? It's like you, you do things properly, otherwise it leads to a, a messy sort of culture and other problems down the line. So it's, um, it really grates me when I see, I see typos often on Australian news sites. I don't know if you notice them. Um, not so much on the news. Um, but I do see them on websites all the time. My favorite is FAQs with an apostrophe. There's no apostrophe in FAQs. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely a very, very important part of... Uh, um, ironically, in the world of technology, we need better communication skills more than ever. You know, And it's a constant issue with engineers that that when we're looking at hiring engineers we're just always looking at their communication skills because it is such a important factor but um, yeah so interesting also chatting with mark about you know and this pops up every now and then the the mental health of, of founder entrepreneurs pops up every now and then and how what a tricky balancing act it is yeah i can't really speak for that myself but um i can see it would be hard like you have to balance or everything that, that someone who doesn't own a company, so everything that they would deal with, plus the fact that you own a company and that you're responsible for that, you're responsible for the people who work for you, it, it would be a lot. It's an extra added pressure just in your day-to-day -day life. And I can see how that would affect a lot of people. But as someone on the inside of a tech startup, I mean, you've seen ups and you've seen out downs as well. So, I mean, I guess even as a team member of a, I mean, we're small, we're less than 20 people. I mean, you, you would have some exposure to that intensity, I guess, as well, right? Oh, I've definitely seen it. I've seen it through through working for Managed Flitter, but also, like, my dad runs a small company as mm -hmm. well, so I've seen it firsthand from him. But, yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's just extra challenge. There's so many good points because you can sort of do things your way and experiment and... You know, you don't actually have that many, you don't have to answer to anyone. I think that's what's <laughs> Let appealing. Let me stop you right there. <laughs> right. If you run the company, it's your company. You always have to answer in life to someone. It just, just matters who, right? Oh, yeah, but not to the same extent. Yeah, no, look, it's your I'm, company, I, you can make the rules. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, get, what, I get what you're saying. You, you, have a, you have a different type of burden and you do have a different type of freedom. I mean, as, as a founder, you have a love-hate relationship with, with stress because I think you know that stress is growing pains as well, right? It's sort of like someone who loves exercise. So when, when you're exercising away and you feel the burn, you sort of hate it, but you know that you're not wasting your time as well. That's true. You know? I did boot camp on the weekend. I'm <laughs> well, paying you, for it today. Well, there you go, right? <laughs> and, and, and stress is a little bit of a similar thing. 
it's not exactly the same thing, but, but it is growing pains. And I've got a lot of mental tricks that I use for stressful times that's, that sometimes work and sometimes don't. But, um, you know, it is pretty much about saying that, that the stress is, is, is helping you get to the next, the next level of the, of the computer game, you know, of the PlayStation game that you're playing. It's, it's, but there's a fine line. Same with the exercise, right? There's a fine line when it just it, it becomes too much and self-destructive and you can injure yourself or you can hurt yourself or you can burn yourself out to the point where you don't want to exercise again. And it's the same with stress where it can just burn you out or, 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 or even make you sick sometimes. So self-awareness is the key in all of this. And it's uh, easier said than done. And knowing where that sweet spot is in life is always the million-dollar question, right? Oh, it's like that for everyone. It's like that for everyone and everything. And, you know, and one of the reasons why I went traveling and working for a little bit is, is you know, being a founder and CEO. And, and in most roles these days, there's a creative element and you need to shake the tree every now and then and you need to get new inspiration. And that's very, very important. Or it's not even so much new inspiration. You need to stay fresh as well, right? We all, a lot of us do creative type of works where you, you've got to stay You've got to stay fresh, and, uh, and, and we're not machines. And I think, I think it's good that the professional world is realizing, and even the industries like investment banking and law are starting to realize that they cannot treat their team like machines because it lands up working against them. Yes, no, I agree. I think it's, it's important to sort of stay fresh, stay inspired, and not burn out. I think if you're working... I don't know if there's a lot of pressure and you're you're putting that kind of stress on yourself consistently, you're not you're not producing a high quality of work at the end of the day. It's all about productivity and it's and it is it's a it's a cliche but it's a marathon not a sprint. And um, it's that's an incredibly important thing especially as a founder CEO but any any team member, you know, it it's needs to have that self-awareness not to not to burn out. I'd, I'd rather our team these consistent performers as opposed to rock stars come in and for a couple of weeks and then, you know, crash and burn type thing. It's, it's the old, you know, the tortoise wins the race in the end type cliche. And it really, really is true. It really, really is true. That consistent effort counts for so much more, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're likely to last longer. You know, they might not produce the same quality of work straight off the bat, but they're going to in the long term. But you said you want to be a founder CEO one day. Yeah, one day. I just <laughs> need to figure out what I want to do. My million dollar idea is, is a work in progress. Tinder meets Instagram meets WhatsApp meets no, blockchain too much. Uh, too much. meets AI. No, too much. I, I think that half the problem actually with some of these apps is they just have too much going on. They didn't totally. do one thing really well. But that that's why there's always a room for the next app, right? Because it takes it away again to simplify. Yeah, it's true. It's true. You just bring it back to basics. I think if you're going to have all these features and stuff, spin them off into different separate things. Yeah, they can't. Yeah, it's, it's, then they start questioning their reason for existence. I mean, imagine if Instagram just stayed with photo sharing one photo app, then it's, they start, it's, I, I think they're scared. It almost seems too easy, you know? But there's actually a, 
if you're interested in this, Kate, there's a very famous book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen, who's a Harvard professor. And uh, he's still alive and he gives talks, etc. Super smart guy. He talks a lot about this, of how innovative companies land up becoming non-innovative and, and all the dynamics. And it's, it, and it's, it's classic. So it is, it is really interesting. And for me, uh, maybe, you, maybe you realize this, maybe you don't as, as one of my team members, but one of the things I try to do in our business is find the sweet spots to have a little bit of chaos. Uh, chaos might be too much of a strong word, but, a, but leaving things a little bit open-ended to, 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 for magic to come from places we don't quite always expect because um, especially as businesses get larger they sort of over-engineer the structure and they over-engineer the responsibilities and and the room for a little bit of magic to come from an unpredictable place becomes very very difficult and that's why one of the many reasons why bigger companies find it hard to innovate you know you look at managed flutter developed by james and myself and you know, we were building Drupal websites and there was enough chaos that, that we could flex our wings and do this. But if there was too much structure and too much rigidity, we just wouldn't have gone this, down this path because there was structure in delivering on these client websites. It's true. You need that kind of room to move, room to play. A little bit. I mean, you can't be totally chaotic as well, you know. No. Well, that's probably why some of these, like Google and stuff, they have these, what do they call it, X Lab, Google yeah. X? Yeah, and they just pay people a lot of money just to, to play around and things. see what they yeah, just to tinker and see what they can do. I was I was invited many years ago when I was still living in South Africa to one of the big banks. I was invited to to go to their experimental labs, and it was really really cool. And they were just like working on ways to prevent bank robberies and to ink money, and they had all this just like all these nutty professors were working there, and it was a, it was a bit like that. Yeah, it's sort of a lab just to where they were given budgets. It was in a separate building away from the main bank, and they were just told to go play with stuff that can maybe loosely be related to banking in some way. And uh, I think yeah. I think those places would be pretty cool to work because you're not under a direct commercial imperative. Yeah, I think, and you didn't have to, you know. For example, some of the stuff like Google's come out with, like the duplex, for example, you could play with this and. And think about all the ethics and stuff like that without being in the public eye. You could still create it and think about it and and see it work before before having everyone else's opinion and criticizing. It'd be cool to just kind of work on something and say, okay, this is what it can do. And I, I don't know how I feel about it yet, but we've made it happen. Well, here's the thing, right? Like, yes, yeah, smart as Google Line is much money they're throwing at R and D. 95% of their revenue is still coming from advertising, and that just shows you how difficult business is, right? If the yeah. Googles of the world, they, they haven't really even found a pathway out of that yet. And they're obviously very, very good at what they do. I mean, exceptionally good. I don't want to minimize that at all. But I'm pretty sure they would love another revenue stream that is not advertising, and they haven't quite found it yet. So, mm. yeah, that's it's what makes it so wonderfully challenging and interesting this animal of business it's a, it's a wonderfully complicated exercise anyway i think that's it for today thanks for listening please drop us an email podcast editor you can follow kate at kate Frappel. you can follow myself ke underscore ga on twitter 
We also do a Twitter chat every week. It's Wednesday morning, Sydney time. It's Tuesday afternoon, American time. It is Tuesday night, European time. Have I got this all right, Kate? Yes, 5 p.m. Eastern time, 2 p.m. Pacific time. Eight, no, 7 a.m. Sydney time, I believe. I'm not sure about Europe. Yeah, me, it's probably about midnight in Europe somewhere or 11 or somewhere around there, pretty late. Um, Twitter chats are pretty cool. It's like it's sort of like a chat room and we have a theme and a guest and Kate and Madeline do a fantastic job of, of um, putting some great questions to the guests that they find. And it's actually, it's actually a lot of fun. Anyway, thanks for listening to us. You've been listening to Kate Frappel, the design lead at Manage Flutter, and myself, Kevin Gardlow, is the CEO at Manage Flutter. Um, hope life is good wherever you are in the world. Thanks for listening. Bye.